As missionaries, one of the questions we're always asked is, what is Pakistan like? And that question's always a bit hard to answer because Pakistan is just so big and diverse. With over 200 million people, Pakistan is the sixth most populated country in the world. And Karachi, the city we live in, has over 20 million people, making it the largest Muslim city in the world. Most people think about Pakistan as being in the Middle East, but actually Pakistan is a land bridge between the Middle East and India. And this location contributes to Pakistan's diversity. It's kind of the place where Arabia meets India. This place in the world where Bollywood meets Islam. It's this location that really makes Pakistan such a unique place to share the gospel. Now, we'll baptize her in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Mary Whitman, in the likeness of his death, and Grace Whitman, in the likeness of his resurrection, we're walking through the blood. Congratulations. The Central Baptist Church of Karachi has been telling people about Jesus since 1957. We are privileged to be the third missionary family to work with this wonderful church. In the past five years, we've seen the church grow to about 300 in weekly attendance, with over a hundred of those being children. offer both English and Urdu services to the people of Karachi, and we pride ourselves in being an evangelistic church. In fact, one of the things that motivates me the most is looking from the pulpit every week and seeing that man whose first name is Muhammad sitting to the right of the stage. Every time I shake his hand, it reminds me of why I'm there. We're there to reach people for Christ. Terrorism continues to be an issue for us. The sounds of children laughing quickly turned into screams of sheer terror when a suicide bomber blew himself up at their playground. 72 people are dead and hundreds more are wounded, many of them women and children. Christians were the target, says Jamaat al-Ahrar. On a regular basis, Christians continue to be persecuted and attacks upon Christian churches are common. The Central Baptist Bible Institute is a key part of our strategy to reach Pakistan. Through it, we are training national church planters and evangelists to reach their own friends and neighbors for Christ. We believe that the Pakistani Christian community has the potential to reach their nation. And through our three-year program in both English and in Urdu, we are giving them the biblical knowledge and the tools that they need to accomplish the Great Commission. 
Currently, we have 50 students who are members of the Central Baptist Bible Institute. As we look to the future, we're excited about what God is going to do. Thank you for partnering with us both through financial and prayer support. We ask you to please continue to pray for open doors to share the gospel, but more specifically for open doors to plant new churches throughout Karachi and across Pakistan. The task of reaching Pakistan and the Muslim world may seem impossible, but thankfully, we have a God who delights in impossibilities. I'm just overwhelmed to see that and to think about Randall back in the third grade at our school over at our former church, going through the third, fourth, fifth, all the way through high school, graduating. And uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him because he, in the process of that, led his family to Christ and uh, surrendered his life to ministry, went up for a short time to Baptist Bible College West up in Bellflower, and then transferred to Boston where he finished up his degree there. Is that where you met Rachel? Yeah. And Rachel came from two churches ago where we worked as the youth pastors in Pueblo, Colorado. And uh, we have another pastor here from Pueblo, Jake's dad, right back over here, John. <clears throat> Rachel is a product of Pueblo, Colorado. And <clears throat> they, they got married and uh, have been in Pakistan. All three of your children have been born in Pakistan. Is that right? So that is a phenomenal to me. I mean, I got to tell you, when Randall first came and told me that you guys were going to go, my first words were, are you sure? Is that safe? And he says, well, I said, don't want you kind of stand out. You know, you got this guy from Tijuana, Mexico, and this lady from Pueblo, Colorado. He says, well, I kind of look, you know, Pakistani or Arab or whatever, and she looks kind of Russian, and there are a lot of Afghans and Russians that are married, so we fit right in. But you know what? You can see what they're doing. 300-some in the church and a Bible institute and training nationals to take the gospel to their own country. What an important, the 200 million people uh, there. So would you welcome Randall Fernandez as he comes to share with us just a few minutes about what God's doing in Pakistan. God bless you, Randall. Good morning. Well, I was right about my appearance and my fitting in. I do fit in well in Karachi, but my wife doesn't. <laughs> so she gets, she gets stares while we're there. But, um, you know, Billy Sunday famously said, God delights in impossibilities. When we look at the Muslim world and when we look at the, the task of missions around the globe, it seems like an impossible goal, doesn't it? of reaching the nations for Jesus. It seems impossible. But God delights in doing the impossible. Have you ever thought about the fact that a miracle can only take place when the situation is absolutely impossible? Think about that. Miracles are not necessary if the situation is first not impossible. Did I say that right? Let me say that again. A miracle is not necessary if the situation is not or impossible. I think I got it right that time. 
One of my favorite stories in the Bible of God doing the impossible is when Jesus is in that boat and the waves are rocking and it's moving back and forth and, 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 and the, the disciples are, are going crazy and they're saying, Jesus, wake up. What are you doing? We're, we're, don't you see that we're perishing? Jesus was just sleeping. Jesus gets up and he says, do you remember what he says to them? He says, oh man, I wish you guys had some more faith. Oh, ye of little faith. Stands up and he says, be still. Remember the disciples' response? What manner of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And for us 21st century Christians, we, we, we read that story and we think, man, Jesus was in the boat with them. The creator of the universe was in the boat and they didn't believe how dumb were they. And here's the funny thing. Here's the, here's the irony of that. Jesus is closer to us today than he was to the disciples then. Jesus was in the boat with them. Jesus is in our heart with us. They saw the impossible accomplished because they called to Jesus. We can see the impossible accomplished if we call on him. I like sharing my testimony because um, it, it, it kind of, I think in, in, in a way, it, it, it kind of captures why missions is necessary. As Pastor Bay said, I'm, I'm originally from Tijuana, Mexico. Started attending uh, Midway Baptist, now Ocean View, when I was in, in the third grade. I got saved. I came to Christ because a white man from Chicago traveled near Imperial Beach, California, hired a black third grade school teacher who shared the gospel with an eight year old Mexican boy who is now sharing the gospel with Pakistanis on the other side of the globe. Missions is about reaching the nations. And we're so thankful to be a part of that. Part of that that work that God is doing. Last summer, we heard a knock on our front door. When we opened the door, much to our surprise, it was a a Muslim prayer leader who was there. Our our doorman is is a... is, is a former Muslim who's come to Christ, and, and he, he opened the door, and they immediately um, I knew they were of Muslim background because of their names, and, and they began talking. Eventually, they called me down, and this Muslim prayer leader started going through all the questions that Muslims go through. Why, how can we trust the Bible? How do we know that it's true? Um, what do you think of the Quran? What do you think of Muhammad? So we were there, and we were talking, and and some time went by, and, and our doorman, who is also a member of our Bible Institute, he kind of took the lead, and he was answering the questions, and he was doing such a good job. I, I left. I left the conversation, came back a few hours later, and they were still there talking. A man arrived at our doorstep at noon. He didn't leave till 10 o'clock that night. That Sunday, he came back. And after church, him and, and our doorman started talking again, and eventually... They knocked on my door again, and this Muslim prayer leader handed me a little booklet where he had signed his name, committing his life to Christ. 
And he said to me, I can't keep this. I don't want my family to find it. Will you hold on to it for me? I said, yes, of course I will. Sitting on my office desk there in, in Karachi. God is doing impossible things around the world. Things that you don't hear about on CNN or Fox News or whatever news channel you prefer. We hear all the negativity. But in the midst of all that, God is at work and God is doing something tremendous. And more than anything, I want to leave you with that. If you have any questions about my ministry, you saw a lot of about Pakistan, please don't hesitate to ask. Um, we'll be here after the service. So. And Pastor Bays, thank you so much for inviting me to, to be here with you guys today. Thank you. I'm so proud of that couple, <clears throat> what God is doing through them. <clears throat> how, many, how, many mile, how many minutes from central Karachi? <clears throat> In downtown, so yeah, that is, that is phenomenal, and we're glad to have a part in that. <clears throat> Psalm 1, Psalms were songs, that was their song book back in the days of the Hebrews, usually set to music, they divided into five different sections, the first section was Psalm 1 through Psalm 41, <clears throat> and that was called the Genesis section, there are similarities between the first five books of the Bible and the first section of the Psalms, they both have much to say about man. They have a lot to say about righteousness and unrighteousness. Both speak about the first and the second Adam. You all know that there's a two Adams, right? First and second Adam. Jesus was called the second Adam. Uh, they both unveil the coming of the Antichrist, the spirit that would be against God, against God's Christ, against the Messiah, the anointed one. In fact, many have referred to the book of Psalms as the Bible in miniature. Besides being used in the Jewish feast days and temple worship, the wealth of the Psalms for private devotion is vast. Uh, the Psalms, and many of you have experienced this if you've been a Christian very long. You'll find direction for the wanderer. We'll find that in Psalm 1. You'll find companionship for the lonely. You'll find hope for the hopeless. You'll find comfort for the afflicted. You'll find encouragement for the persecuted. And it's interesting, and I'll just take a second to mention this, that David, the prolific author of many of the Psalms, went through some of the deepest valleys, and in going through those deepest valleys, wrote some of the most incredible poetic Psalms ever to be written, and they are a source of encouragement to us. So his being discouraged worked for our being able to be encouraged. It, we find in the page of the Psalms, forgiveness for the guilty. Psalm 51 is an incredible one. Deliverance for the embattled. And so Jesus quoted many, many times from the book of Psalms. Although David is the human author of about half of the Psalms, Psalm 1 is not one of his uh, Psalms. It's probably the work of Asaph, though some call it an orphan Psalm because you really don't know who wrote that. The known authors of the Psalms are David, Asaph, the children of Korah, Moses, uh, Heman, and Ethan. And the organizer of the book is unknown. All these songs are written. Uh, Micah, have you written some songs? Yeah, you've written a few, right? Okay. So, and so imagine, uh, imagine several songwriters getting together, putting all the songs in a pile, and saying to someone, okay, let's, we want to put these all together. There would, there'd have to be some kind of an order to it. If, if you gave a jeweler 150 precious gems and told him to put them together, string them together, would he just do so randomly, do you think? Probably not. 
uh, there would be some order. Maybe the size would be the sizes would be together, like pearls uh, of different sizes. Maybe larger in the middle and getting smaller as they go to the outside. Maybe uh, it would be according to color. Or maybe something else. And with the Psalms, there are three primary ways that they're organized. One is thematic order, the certain themes. Another, some of them are alphabetic. In fact, there are psalms that will have uh, the first word of each verse is, is one of the letters of the alphabet, and, and so was in that order. There's a prophetic order, and we don't have any time to talk about all of that, uh, but we want you to know that Psalm chapter 1 is God's word, and it tells us how to be loved uh, by God, that we are loved by God, how to love God, how to serve God, how to obey God, and that there is a, uh, there's a blessing and a happiness and a joy and a peace in obeying God, and there's a curse for not obeying God. It may well be a preface psalm to the rest of the book. The psalmist's desire is to teach us that real happiness is found in seeking the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and obeying the Lord as best that we possibly can. So with that said, uh, kind of a quick intro. Let's get into verse 1. Everybody knows you probably quoted, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. The word blessed is, uh, can also be translated happy. So happy is the man uh, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor st- stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It's a kind of a benediction. You can be blessed by doing what we're about to tell you right here, the psalmist says. Very much like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he gives a whole series of things that will bless you and make you blessed if you do them. The Hebrew word for blessed here is, is plural. So what we're talking about is not just one blessing, but a multiplicity of blessings for those who do what is taught in this particular psalm. The blessed man, let's find out first what what he's taught. The, The blessed man does not walk in the foolish counsel of the ungodly. How many know there's a lot of foolish counsel out there? You know, there used to be some pretty good stuff. I remember that Billy Graham used to have in the newspapers some, some advice column and people would write questions about the Bible and he would give an answer and, and it was always interesting and always good. I remember even Dear Abby. How many remember Dear Abby huh? or Ann Landers or whatever? I don't know if they were schizophrenic, the same person, or I think they were twin sisters or something, but they had these syndicated columns where they would, they would answer, my brother-in-law, you know, he just burps all the time and it's disgusting. What can I do about that? You know, she would give the answer to that. Well, there used to be some decent counsel you could get, but the fact of the matter is it seems like today that there's more and more ungodly counsel. When I was going to through Bible college. I was working at a hospital. I worked in a psychiatric ward. In that psychiatric ward, uh, I specifically remember more than one time, but I remember one time in particular, a young man was there, had an alcohol problem, had a morality problem, had all kinds of issues. And the the psychiatrist dealing with him, uh, and he had a lot of stress in his life. He had a lot of problems. And so the psychiatrist in dealing with him said, what you need to do is get a bottle and get a girl and just, you know, get rid of all your stress and then everything will calm down, which is exactly what the guy was doing to stress himself out to begin with and to cause problems. That's foolish counsel. Uh, And and there are a lot of of sources of it. Doctors give a lot of foolish counsel. Um, Lawyers give a lot of foolish counsel. Politicians give a lot of foolish counsel. Uh, 
professors in, in universities, you got to watch them. If they're not right on the Word of God, they're going to give a lot of foolish counsel. Famous actors, they line up with all kinds of foolishness. Dr. Phil, he's not always right. Oprah, not always right. I'll tell you what, folks. Counsel, where should we get godly counsel? From the Word of God. This is a counseling book. This is one. You want to have peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding. Both the peace of God and the God of peace are revealed in the pages of this book. So his counsel found the word of God. In fact, the Bible says the, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. Psalm 37 tells us that. And, and how does that work? Because he tells us through reading the word of God how to move and how to go forward and how to figure out. And Randall, I don't know what your testimony was in as specifics as far as determining that God was calling you into ministry, but the missionary last week, his sermon text was the exact text that God used to draw me into ministry from, from Matthew chapter 9 when he talked about looking at the fields of the harvest and they were white unto harvest and pray therefore the Lord of the harvest. He would send forth laborers into the field. And I remember sitting in my room in Moni, Illinois uh, on a Friday night and I was in my room on a Friday night because I was sick. Otherwise, I'd have been out with my friends because that's what we did on weekends. But I was sick and I was there and I, and I, and God began dealing with me and God began convicting me through those verses. And it was just, you know what? Jesus may have been, may as well have been sitting in the room with me, talking with me, because that's what the word of God was doing. And, and I, I did something I would recommend it. And I, I put a little test out there, a little fleece out there. And I said, God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. I don't recommend that. But I did it, and God in his grace did it, and I said, okay. And that was, that was it. The word of God is why the word of God is how we figured out things in our life. We as a couple, it's, it's how we figured out how to do what we do. The, it, the counsel is sure. The steps are ordered by the Lord. It's a sure sign of inward peace when our outward walk is changed. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 17, if any person be in Christ, they're a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. The word of God begins. It's like a, it's like a, a, a filter filtering out the things that don't need to be there. The word of God. The blessed man doesn't walk in the foolish counsel of the ungodly. You want good, godly advice, go to good, godly people that are walking the walk, talking the talk. They, they don't just talk about it. They do it and follow their counsel and get in the word of God. Second thing here, the blessed man does not stand in association with sinners. Preacher, are we supposed to have friends? Yeah, you can be a friend. Jesus was a friend to tax collectors. He was a friend to uh, the, 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 not the higher class. He was a friend to the poor, the beggars, the, the weak, the, the sinners. The, I mean, he was a friend to them, and we ought to be friends, but we don't stand in association with sinners. Uh, although a sinner himself... We ought to be a justified sinner, quickened by the Holy Spirit of God, made alive by the Holy Spirit of God. So our standing ought to be with the righteous. Our standing ought to be with thus saith the Lord. Our standing ought to be with God's people. Don't run with the crowd that does evil. If there are any young people, teenagers in here, one of the Proverbs sticks out to me, a companion of fools will be destroyed. Third grade was when I, Miss Miller called me in to stay after school in third grade one day, and I thought, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble. And she said, Jimmy, that's what she said. She said, Jimmy, 
you've been hanging around with Mark. Mark is a troublemaker. Don't hang around with Mark or you'll be in trouble. You know what? I had a lot of, a lot of respect for Mrs. Miller. She was a, a wonderful lady. I don't know if she's a Christian or not, I, but, but she, I had a tremendous respect for her, and I took her advice. Do you know today I asked someone just on this trip we were on, you know, what, what's with Mark? Oh, boy, he's got some serious issues. He is kind of running on the law, from the law, staying under the radar. Uh, he, he left L.A. and is back in the, in the Midwest. Nobody knows quite for sure. The family doesn't have anything to do with it. You know what? You don't, you don't stand in association with those who are involved with foolishness. So, uh, so companion fools shall be, shall be destroyed. The first part of that verse says, He that walks with wise men shall be wise. The blessed man doesn't walk in the foolish counsel. The blessed man and woman doesn't stand in association with sinners. Thirdly, the blessed man does not sit in the seat of scorners. Does not sit in the seat of those who find fault with and demean Christianity, demean the things of God. He finds no comfort in the atheist explanations. Others uh, mock God. They mock sin, the idea of sin. They mock the idea of salvation. Uh, they, um, they put down the Bible. They put down Christianity as a whole. The church is uh, anathema to them. Uh, godliness is just silly and a waste of time, but not so blessed men and women, not so happy men and women, our philosophies are much more secure than that of the atheist. By by the way, again, I will say this, an atheist tends to want to take everything away from us and put nothing in its place. Take away the hope for heaven, take away the relief from sin and and the guilt and shame, take away uh, all of the positive things that Christianity offers and leave us nothing in return. Uh, that's a bad deal, I think. The seat of the scornful is very close, I think, to the gates of hell. There is an atheist psalm. Did you know that? Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Yeah, work on that later. You'll figure it out. They are corrupt. They have gone, done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. In Psalm 1, we're safeguarded from foolish advice, from friendly association of sinners, from full acceptance of scorners. It, and notice it's a downward spiral. The first there's the walking, then there's the standing, and then there's the sitting down with them. The walking is like those who are careless to begin with in the preschool of sin. The standing is like those in the elementary and high school. They're, they're kind of taking it all in. They openly sin, and the sitting with them are actively trying to denigrate the living God and the things of God. And I, that's like the colleges and universities of hell. So away with that kind of hand-holding with the devil, people of God, blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Now, that's the negative part. What's the positive part? Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. We learn that the blessed man negatively is in verse 1. Now we learn positively he delights in the law of God. He is not under its curses and its condemnation. It outlines the way of life. It outlines the way of freedom. It outlines the way of grace. And he meditates on it by day and he thinks about it by night. The word comforts him during sleepless nights. The word comforts him when he's by the hospital bed of a friend or his spouse. The word of God comforts him when troubles multiply. 
And everybody here goes through those times. <clears throat> and it's the word of God that can lift you out. Remember we talked two weeks ago about how to avoid depression, discouragement. We talked about David encouraging himself in the Lord. And you know how part of that process is getting back into the word of God and drawing close to the Lord with prayer? David only had the first five books of Moses. We have 66 books. We have a wealth of information there, folks, to take us out of the pit, to take us out of the morass that sometimes life leaves us in. We need to search the pages of the holy book and meditate. You know what meditation is? Meditation is not sitting around going, trying to purge your brain of anything, not think of anything. That's not meditation. That's a vacation, vacating your brain. That's meditating, it's thinking on. It's, it means to chew on, literally. It means to ruminate and to chew on the word of God. How do you chew on the word of God? You don't take the Bible and put it in your mouth. You, you take the word of God, you put it in your heart, in your life, you memorize it, and then you go over it, over it, over it, or you read it, and you go over it, over it, over it, and you claim it. That's meditating on the word of God, letting it make a change in your life. Hopefully, you don't walk in the ways of the ungodly. But then, let me ask you, do you meditate and delight in the way of the Lord? If we only do the first part, that's great. We're not not standing, sitting, and walking where we don't need to be. But are we then delighting and meditating on that which is positive? Third thing is a successful life. In verse 3, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit and season, its leaves shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. So the happy man we see here has a successful life as defined not by human success, but by godly success, godly definition. Human success might be, well, he's powerful. Human success might be, well, he's got a lot of money. Human success might be, well, he's popular and, 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 and are very uh, powerful in some way, a, a government official. They are successful. They have reached the pinnacle of whatever. They may not be a success as far as God is concerned at all. The happy man has a prominence like a tree, like a tree. He has a permanence planted, not a wild volunteer tree. It was planted on purpose, one put there intentionally, one cultivated, one that was made to, 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 uh, to, to exist, to, to thrive. We see the prominence, the permanence. We see the position by the rivers of living water, a place of nourishment, not just a river, but by rivers Rivers of pardon, rivers of grace, rivers of promise, rivers of communion. If one river fails, there's another and another and another and another after that. God is limitless in his provision for his children. And then the, the, he, the productivity. We see fruit. He will produce fruit in a season. We got a whole uh, section of Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit, for example. But you can find patience in the time of testing. You can find grace in the time of, uh, of, of need. You can find mercy during a time of strife. You can find faith in the time of trial and love in the time of hatred. It's also like a tree planted by the rivers of water in propriety because he produces his fruit in season, out of season. When it's convenient, when it's not. When everything's going great, when everything's going crummy. Continues to produce fruit. Uh, By the way, we had this song, we used to sing at uh, the other church, God is an on-time God. 
I just love that chorus. God is an on-time God. We can, we can get ahead of God. We can be behind God. God is always on time. Where is God in a situation? That's what Job wondered for 40 chapters. 40 chapters. But God is an on-time God. The God that the Bible talks about, that you and I trust for eternal life, the God that you and I believe in for forgiveness of sins, the God that paid the price with his own precious blood by dying on the cross, the God that the Word of God talks about is an on-time God. He'll be there. He will never leave you, never, ever, ever leave you nor forsake you. He is an on-time God. And God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Well, what about when you're going through a real difficult time? God is still good. He is. What about when people are, God is still good. And then you see the perpetuity. Shall not, the leaf shall not wither. Not just the fruit will last, but the leaf will not fade. Isn't that amazing? Because most places in the country, when it gets colder and it gets cold enough and the frost hits, then the sap ceases to flow to the trees and the, tree, the, the leaves then grow they, they, they turn beautiful colors at first, then they turn brown and drop off. And they wither away and they're done for. They won't live anymore. Those won't live anymore. Those leaves are gone. But the leaves on these trees, this, this just man who walks in the, not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, his leaf shall not fade. He will not lose his fruitfulness nor his beauty. And then it's prosperity in everything he does, not necessarily Outward prosperity as we think about it, but a much better prosperity, which is a spiritual prosperity seen with a whole different set of eyes. Elijah's servant didn't see the valley filled with angels and chariots of God, but they were there. All he saw was the enemy. All he saw was the obstacles. All he saw were the problems. All he saw were the ones who were threatening to take the lives of, of, of this prophet but God gave him the ability to open and see with eyes that are not just physical eyes. And all around him, God of angel armies, God had sent his angels. And the chariots were everywhere. And the enemy didn't have a chance. Verse 4 talks about, by way of contrast, an ungodly life. The ungodly are not so. They're not like a tree planted by the rivers of water. They're not... Uh, there in prosperity and perpetuity and, and propriety and, and productivity and position and permanence and prominence. They're not. They're, they're the opposite of that. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Whatever good is said about the blessed man is not so for the ungodly person. They're like uh, the chaff which is intrinsically worthless and dead and unproductive and without substance and driven away by the wind you know how they would do that you know I, you've probably seen it they, they would take it and they would they would they had these baskets and they would sift the grain and and cause it to go up after it had been threshed and and then the the shells the hulls the part that didn't have the nutrition would be blown away by the wind and would be gone leaving therefore then the grain and what he says about the ungodly is they're like the shaft which the wind driveth away. In the New Testament, it says they're good for nothing but fire, good for nothing but to be burned. Number five, an ungodly separation in verse five. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They will not stand there in the judgment in the sense of being able to participate with the Lord. They will stand there to be judged, not to judge, and they will not be acquitted. 
While the blessed righteous long for a heaven where no evil person will dwell on earth, we deal with them all the time. They're all around. I've got news for you. The devil even goes to church. Might be sitting next to you right now. Be careful. Ladies, don't elbow your husbands right now. People are looking. He even preaches sometimes. Wheat and tares grow together, according to the New Testament, during this age. Precious jewels among the pebbles and the gravel, but in heaven, sinners are not allowed. And here's the thought. Someone who wants nothing to do with God, would they really be happy in heaven if they didn't want anything to do with God? Verse 6, the ungodly end. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish The Hebrew here, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, is the idea of a continuous action. The Lord is knowing. The Lord is knowing the way of the righteous. It is present tense. It is ongoing. He is constantly, continuously looking on us, and the way may be misty and dark for us, but he sees it clearly. And Job 23.10, he knows where I'm going, and when he tests me, I will come out as pure as gold. A way of contrast, again, the ungodly shall perish. Not only the ungodly, but the way of the ungodly shall perish, and they and their way shall be banned from God's presence forever. But being eternally separated from God is such a horrendous thought to me. It's the kind of thing that's not good to meditate upon. Try to imagine not having God in your life, not having God's blessings, not having God's protection not having God's promises, that kind of meditation of that prospect would most certainly lead to panic attacks. So what about you this morning? Are you among the blessed men and women, young people who stand with God and God's word, or are you part of the ungodly? Do you walk, stand, or sit where you don't belong? To whom do you go to advice? Where do you go for advice? To whom do you listen? And where, most importantly, where will you spend eternity? Where will you go? Where will you be 1,000 years from today? 100 years from today, where will you be? It depends on whether or not you've walked with God, put your faith and trust in his son. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our Father, we're so thankful for the Word of God that gives us direction. We're so thankful for this psalm that talks about the righteous and the unrighteous. And Lord, we know that we have nothing good in us except you change us, except you come into our lives, except you indwell us and make us into something decent and worthy. Father, we're sinners on our way to hell until you forgive us and cleanse us and make us your child. Lord, I pray for people here this morning who may be standing where they shouldn't be standing, maybe walking in the council they shouldn't be walking in, maybe sitting with the scornful even and finding fault. I pray that, God, you would lead them out of that and that you would lead them to yourself and that, Father, we would see people today put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and others come and repent of things in their lives that are wrong. Father, maybe others become members of this church whatever you're leading us to do, 
May we do it for your honor and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with us, please. And as we stand together, I'm going to ask you to come. If you need to pray, if you'd like to talk to someone about Christ, uh, my wife is right here, Rachel's right here, Fitz is over here, missionary Randall's right here. If we can help you in any way. Most of all, if you're not certain, if you died today, you'd be in heaven, would you let us take a few moments and show you from the Word of God how you can know that before you leave? Because if everything, if you never come back here, that's one thing. But if you never receive Christ, that is another thing entirely. So would you come right now as we sing, Michael Elitis, you come ahead.